This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Nearly 50,000 General Motors workers across the Midwest and South are on strike for a second day. GM and the United Auto Workers failed to come up with a new agreement on pay and benefits, but they are continuing their negotiations. The economic impact of this strike is significant. The stoppage is estimated to be costing the Detroit automaker somewhere between 50 and $90 million a day, if not more. And for every GM worker on strike, seven other jobs in the U.S. US are impacted. By the way, the last time that GM faced a strike was back in 2007. With more, we're joined here in studio by John Paul McDuffie, who's management professor at the Wharton School and director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation at Wharton's Mac Institute for Innovation Management. Also joining us on the phone, Merrick Masters, director of the Labor at Wayne Project and professor of management, as well as adjunct professor of political science at Wayne State University, and Harley Shaken, who's a professor at the University. University of California at Berkeley Graduate School of Education and a labor economist. John Paul, great to see you. Good to be here. Harley, Merrick, thank you very much for your time today, gentlemen. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, How much of this from GM's side is what the future of the industry, John Paul, may be in 10 years and and the concerns that, that many automakers are having right now? I, you know, I would say this strike is not a surprise for a bunch of reasons. And, you know, a a few of the basics here in the financial crisis, the UAW made a lot of concessions. The last time they renewed the contract in 2014, they did not go on strike and they didn't press for very many changes. And so the members feel that some changes are, are long overdue. Picking one company first is common. And then you hope the pattern holds with the others. And GM has been the most profitable. Um, GM has also uh, announced closing of these four plants in the last year, which was very controversial, and the union was very upset about that. So um, I think what you're alluding to is absolutely the case. GM is, like all the uh, incumbent automakers, having to balance keeping the legacy business going while investing massively in these new technologies, which are going to be so important in the next stage of our mobility. So whether it's electric or autonomous vehicles or connected vehicles, et cetera, massively expensive. We've seen all kinds of alliances and acquisitions and things to try to deal with that, you know, sort of future technology side of things. Meanwhile, the, uh, you know, record high sales of the last few years are starting to decline. So the industry enters its predictable cyclical downturn right at the time of this as well. So it's not so surprising that the two sides are pretty far apart at the moment and uh, that the strike has resulted. Harley, give us your thoughts on it and whether or not you think this is going to be a lengthy, uh, lengthy work stoppage. Well, I think John Paul uh, really gave a good summary of it. There are critical issues for GM and the UAW. Underlying it is the fact that that General Motors is here today in large part because of UAW workers and the union when it slid into bankruptcy in 2009. Uh, The union was vital in Washington to get $50 billion from the federal government to rescue the company, and the workers made very large concessions at a moment of real crisis, very painful, to get it through. Uh, At this point in time, GM has viewed those concessions at a moment of crisis 
as a normal way of doing business. About 30% of the workforce at General Motors, about 46,000 workers, is earning significantly less than senior workers earn, and another 7 to 10% are temporary workers. That's a bit of a misnomer, since they can work for three, four, five years or more, and they earn $15 an hour. So for the union, for the workers, they're aware of all the crisis that's taking place in the industry and the challenges for GM, but they're also aware in light of record profitability, $35 billion over the last three years, if they can't get some of this return now, when? Merrick, your thoughts? Well, I think both sides are in a difficult position. Um, Both professors summed it up very well. Um, Although they're in a difficult position, I think the elements of an agreement are available. It's just a matter of the parties trying to work through them. And I heard an interesting report in the news this morning. They were talking to one of the strikers in the Detroit area, and he was saying, you know, this is what has to happen now and then, and he has confidence in the party's ability to get things done. And realizing that the costs of not getting things done are very high, I think both parties, um, although they seemed far apart a couple of days ago, may be making some progress toward narrowing their differences. But the, the $35 billion number, John Paul, the, the, over the last three years, that's a that's a significant number in, in terms of this overall discussion. The union says, you've got $35 billion profit you've made over the last three years. Why can't we get a little bit more of it? But leading to what we were just talking about, out of that $35 billion, how much of that money is going into all of this other technology and the the development of it that that they know they're going to need for the years to come? Yeah, I mean, GM would say, okay, well, we've had profit sharing, so each union member has been getting about 11000 a year from that. That's one piece where we're sharing it with you. Um, and of course, uh, Wall Street has been happiest with GM's uh, strategic moves over this period of time. Some of that is, you know, they're, uh, they've got a leading electric vehicle in the Bolt. They've got Cruise as their autonomous vehicle acquisition. They've got OnStar. They're kind of doing well in that area. But they also shrunk a bunch around the world, which is yep. interesting. Um, the days when uh, growth and scale was the thing that was viewed as a sign of success. Uh, those days have at least partially changed. When GM got out of Europe, got out of some other markets, the stock market uh, applauded, and that's been one of the source of the profits. So, you know, the UAW is looking at this. They're seeing product move to Mexico. They're seeing GM downsizing. They're seeing big executive bonuses. And they're like, yeah, okay, so you have to invest in the future, but you got to invest in us too yeah. if you want to have good quality products and keep loyal customers. America, you are obviously right there in the in the heart of this in the state of Michigan uh, with the the headquarters of uh, of the three big automakers right now. What is the, the the mindset in the state right now about this industry, which has been so important to the strength of Michigan over the years, and especially when you see facilities that are, that are shuttering, like like the Hamtramck facility. Well, I think the mindset is one of concern. There was a report in the paper this morning that if this were to continue for a significant period of time, it could push Michigan into a recession. It could be a single-state recession in the country. But that would only occur if the strike were for a very prolonged period of time. 
I, th I think it's important to remember that most of the attention the past few days has focused on what we haven't brought up yet, and that is the scandal surrounding the UAW. Yep. And that's what everybody's attention has been focused on. The entire discussions about the negotiations center on what impact the scandal might have on the union. There are a lot of skepticism, a lot of um, speculation. I try not to indulge in too much of that. The parties, I think, are genuinely trying to figure things out right now. And um, I think that that's where their attention is focused, and that's where it should be. Harley, what do you get as a sense for this industry right now? Oh, the industry faces very large challenges. GM has done some impressive things with electric vehicles, with its moves in autonomous technology. It's got a ways to go. That's very clear. But key to the industry, and this is easy to forget, is a highly motivated, highly skilled workforce. That can make a world of difference in all kinds of ways. GM has that. But there are costs to maintaining that, and that's something that Wall Street is often tone deaf to, being focused more narrowly on the bottom line, but losing that motivation, having an angry workforce, that has a cost, too. Uh, and that's not helped uh, given the current situation and what's taking place, both with the earlier closure of four plants uh, and now uh, with the bottleneck at the bargaining table. Well, What's I, I, most important is collective bargaining does work. There will be a settlement. Yeah. The question is at what cost? Merrick? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's important that the parties rebuild trust. A lot of this, and I think Professor McDuffie alluded to it as well as Professor Shaken. Um, um, GM, I think, made um, an error, a tactical error, in how it handled the layoffs and plant closures. Uh, and the timing of that and the way it was done, I think, left a very bitter taste in not only the blue-collar workforce, but also the white-collar workforce. And I would say, while you do need a highly motivated workforce, I would say compared to Ford, GM's workforce historically has not been as highly motivated. Relations between management and labor have been more tense in that company than they have been in Ford. And so building the trust is something going forward I think they really need to focus on. That's why important for both sides. And there are good people on both sides negotiating uh, to get this deal done and then think about what the future might look like and try and, you know, give people a better sense of hope and optimism about the future. John Paul? Yeah, I, th I think the point about the plant closings, Merrick's point about the plant closings is a really interesting one. Um, it was December of last year. The company knew that these negotiations were coming up. Uh, it wasn't a new situation. These, The volume of the products built in those plants had been declining, mostly sedans. You know, the UAW could point to a letter where GM had said, we won't close any plants. Yeah. Um, then there was a clause that said, in, unless there are drastic changes in business conditions. And GM says, well, the products weren't selling. UAW says, well, why didn't you put some other higher, faster selling products in there? If your plants were truly flexible, like some of your competitors, you could have 
you could have done that. I do think that they suffered a pretty big back- backlash. Maybe they were playing a little bit more to to Wall Street in that case. Um, they got blasted immediately by the president for yep. closing the plants. And, you know, now that their proposals for settlement include putting new product in those plants, putting battery making in Lordstown, it almost looks like they were positioning themselves to, you know, have a negotiating chip for this, which is when there's something as dramatic as plant closings and a lot of layoffs involved is not exactly going to win the hearts and minds of the workforce. Well, Merrick, let me talk about Mary Barra for a second here, because John Paul mentioned about the president and the tweets that he sent out. Well, Mary Barra met with President Trump, if, if memory serves me, pretty soon uh, after that, Mary Barra is 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 a child of this company. She you know came up through the through the ranks, and I think to some degree, even though you have her as the CEO and she has to take the role of you know of the executive, I think a lot of people would say. Well, wait a minute. She understands the company. Why are we having this kind of uh, of stoppage at this point? Well, I think that you know there are a variety of forces at work which are entirely separate from her persona and are beyond her control. They're really beyond anybody's control. I, I think the union feels that great sacrifices are made. They're still as Professor Shaken pointed out, a significant part of the workforce, which is not making the legacy workers wages and would like to do a lot better. And there's a lot of distrust, I think, of the company, rightly or wrongly, about its willingness to fulfill its commitment to the workforce. And then on the other hand, you have the company facing a very turbulent, uncertain industry with heavy demands for capital investment. And it's not surprising, I think, as we started out discussing, that you're you're at this point right now. Now, the reports are that if um, the union had had more time to review the proposal that GM submitted just a couple hours before the strike deadline, we might not have been in this spot. Right. I don't know if that's the case or not. But the parties uh, talked for a long time yesterday. They started meeting early this morning. And I view that as a good sign that they're trying to work through some very, very difficult issues. And it will take some time for them to get it done, but I don't think it will take forever. I don't think that we could end up with like in uh, 1998 with the selected strike that occurred of 54 days. You know, I just did a rough calculation. It's estimated that General Motors loses about $50 million a day for the strike. And if that were to last $54 million, that would uh, deplete about 25% of its free cash. Um, And while the companies have made a lot of money nominally, it's still not a very sexy industry to be in. Profit margins are relatively low. Capital investment requirements are huge. Their debt-to-equity ratio is pretty high. So all these things, I think, you know, GM is not guaranteed a future to be here forever. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Merrick, that statement you just made, GM's not guaranteed to be here forever. I think that would catch a lot of people off uh, off guard right now because of kind of the legacy that, that it has in the United States. But as we've seen, there have been other legacy companies that have had to go by the boards. 
Well, I think the industry is in for some rapid disruptive changes, and it's I would I would not want to bet anything on who would be the major auto players 15 to 20 years from now. Harley, your thoughts? Well, let's put this in a bit of context on two levels. First, uh, we spoke a moment ago about the $35 billion over the last three years. Over the last four years, GM spent $25 billion in stock buybacks and in paying dividends to its shareholders. That's a huge chunk of money. So to do that then and to say now we really need to, to hammer down on labor costs, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't sit so well with workers. When you put it in the context of a specific plant, like the Lordstown plant that has been closed, much has been said, a slower selling model. The Chevy Cruze, when the plant finally closed down was the 10th best-selling car in the United States, 140,000 last year. But beyond that, it wasn't so much large cosmic forces shaping the industry, but GM's decision to allocate product that could have gone into a Lordstown into Mexico. So the net result is GM last year manufactured 800,000 vehicles in Mexico, two-thirds or more of which were sold in the U.S. at the same time that they've closed plants like uh, Lordstown and yeah. possibly Hamtramck uh, because of capacity utilization issues. Well, and, and a capacity utilization, it's where production is sent. Right, and that's obviously been a, a contention, a point of contention of... Uh, uh, of President Trump, uh, of other members of, of Congress about that element uh, and the fact that because, John Paul, the pay rate is, is different, or at least has been in the past, the pay rate of producing a car in, in Mexico in comparison to producing here in the United States, that's, it's obviously, it's a significant savings for GM, but yeah. obviously it, it does not help the UAW workers. Well, the, the, the wage uh, differences are, are quite large. Um, we've talked before about how, you know, auto is uh, quite heavily automated in parts of its assembly plants, like yeah. welding and paint, but assembly is still a largely manual activity, and, and that seems to be, you know, Tesla, for example, learned that um, to their, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, sorrow in terms of having over-automated. So, um yeah, I think the of course this is the other big global trend is outsourcing to lower labor cost kinds of locations. But in this current political climate, um, there's a contrast effect that GM is suffering from here now because Ford actually backed away from a plan to move product to Mexico, and they announced they would put it in the U.S. instead. Yep. And Fiat uh, Chrysler just announced a big new plant investment right in Detroit. You know, which was one place that saw a tremendous amount of disinvestment. Um, Chrysler had its Jefferson North plan in the beginning of the 90s, and this is a plant that's going to be right nearby, and it's going to make that even more of a manufacturing hub for them. So, you know, uh, fair or not, um, Ford and Chrysler turn you know look a little better from the UAW's point of view, and GM is easier to cast as the villain in this particular plotline. Merrick? Well, I think uh, everything that was said is just right on point. I mean, it, 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 it's a global industry, and people shift production where they can maximize the profitability. And really, the challenge for labor is to do something to 
harmonize wage rates across uh, societies. Um, otherwise, there will be this continuous competition and, you know, sourcing for places that are less costly. Now, that's the nature of the business. Now, companies, uh, you know, GM and its proposal that was made um, released, uh, you know, its unprecedented release of its proposal pledges to make $7 billion of investment in the U.S., creating about 5,400 jobs. And, you know, in Detroit, where Chrysler has just announced its plan to develop a plant, that is about 5,000 new jobs that will be in this region. So the companies are really, I think, struggling to find a balance in what is a very difficult situation. Mayor uh, Harley, your thoughts? Well, you know, it strikes me that this is really much more than an auto story, than a GM or a UAW story. It's about the United States. It affects all Americans. And it's about the middle class. The flip side of of laying off Lordstown workers at $30 an hour is you lose $30 an hour in purchasing power. That's what fuels the economy, and historically in the post-World War II era, that's what built a middle class in the United States. When it's outsourced, not simply to low-wage areas, but to areas where wages are suppressed because workers do not have the right to form independent unions, then you are not simply uh, undermining auto worker wages, you're really undermining the middle class. You're undermining the purchasing power that has fueled economic growth in this country historically. So the stakes here go well beyond Detroit, and they really pose the fundamental question, on what basis do U.S. companies compete in the global economy? I think you can make the case uh, that they can compete at high wages, given the high productivity, given the innovation, and all the other parts of this. Or they can make even more money next quarter with suppressed wages, but that's going to damage growth, that's going to damage the middle class, and I don't think that's in anyone's long-term interest. John Paul? Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with Harley that it is a much broader issue, and I think, you know, we see some signs that the political climate and the public opinion around these issues is maybe changing a bit. I mean, some of it is a general populism and a, you know, buy America, be suspicious of global trade. Um, but, you know, we've had such a focus in both our public policy and in what corporate policies have been on uh, making things inexpensive for the consumer. So amazing yep. amounts of cheap goods that have come in uh, with less attention to individuals as also producers, right? So yep. you consume, yep. you produce. But on the production side, we know wages have been stagnant despite strengthening labor markets, et cetera. Um, You know, there's a fundamental, it's back to an auto industry example, but a a kind of a connection between the producer side and the consumer side of of individuals. Uh, Going back to Henry Ford when he, you know, tripled wages to have a $5 day, um, he did it uh, to reduce high turnover so he could keep making lots of Model Ts. He did it in a very, uh, you know, company company interest uh, kind of way, but he did acknowledge 
that in doing that, his workers could buy Model Ts. So, you know, you, you feed the production side of people's wages and salaries and incomes and and ability to be upwardly mobile, and then they become consumers for the products that you're selling, particularly the ones that move up into the higher margin areas where businesses want to be. So maybe we're starting to see some shift in thinking about that balance between the producer side of an individual's experience and the consumption side. Merrick? Well, I think, you know, the political aspect of this, the macroeconomic aspect of this is really important. And I was in an event earlier this week in which a former top executive of Ford Motor Company said that he wished during this time period the United States has had an industrial policy. Um, because I think the reality is, is no matter how much we wish that there wouldn't be dislocation, there will be dislocation, there will be disruption, and there will be hardships. But it's how do we deal with those things? How do we position ourselves to make certain that those who remain at work have the highest wages possible and that we maximize the opportunity through job training, et cetera, to relocate people with minimal harm? Harley, your thoughts? Well, you know, I think something surprising has happened in the last several days in terms of the public reaction to this strike of UAW workers, which really shows the fundamental frustration and apprehension that so many Americans feel. David Leonard, the New York Times columnist, in his daily newsletter, you know, is totally supporting these strikers, and in a very real way, they've become the West Virginia teachers of fall 2019. In other words, they are carrying a banner of many other Americans who are discontented and fearful about what the economic future holds. In more recent strikes, it's always been, why should these workers get something if I don't have it? Now that seems to have turned with the political climates, with these broader feelings, and the attitude seems to be growing. I hope they get it, because maybe we can get that, too. That's a sea change. The other part to this, uh, America, is the the fact that it's not only just the production lines, but it's the parts facilities as well that, that, that are on strike here also. Oh, absolutely. You've got the parts facilities, and as you mentioned in the opening, an auto assembly plant, each worker supports seven jobs. You've got school teachers. You've got people who wait tables. You've got people in grocery stores, nurses, all of whom depend on these plants, and in some part their wages are determined by what workers in these industries get. So you've got a broader set of support, and we're seeing that amidst a broader political sea change that's taking place. Merrick? Well, you've got a ripple effect. There's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, that just goes back to the point that the longer this uh, lasts, the longer the strike lasts, the more harmful it will be uh, to both sides, and that you hope that um, they can find a path to get a solution. Great having you all with us. Uh, thank you, Harley. Thank you, Merrick, for your insight. All the best to you both. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. John Paul, Good as always, great to see you and great to have your insight. Good to be here. Thank Thanks. you for coming in. John Paul McDuffie from here at the Wharton School, Harley Shaken at the University of California at Berkeley, and Merrick Masters at Wayne State University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 